for all Bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. Yes, here we are being leftist feminist. No one thinks we exist. We are here. We're in the same room again. I feel like we we've been doing a lot of Skype. Yeah, but here we are together again. The band is back together. Julie, I have a confession. Okay. Uh, yeah although i am a leftist feminist woman Uh i walked right off the picket line of my own sex strike i knew that this was gonna happen i knew this day would come well (laughs) look you know uh my heart is full of solidarity um but yeah i kind of reached this point where i realized you know look we all know that I've taken some psychedelics. I talk about it on the podcast a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I felt like in the past few weeks, I was expending like 100% of my witch energy yeah. to uh, elect cause. Bernie Sanders. To the cause. Yeah. And then I just, I reached a point like, especially after, you know, I just like published this really vulnerable thing and I was... I was posting too much and I just, you know, I still really want to do uh, a ton of real life activism, make calls. I want to do a lot more canvassing. Uh, but yeah, I realized that I needed to recharge my witch energy to mm-hmm. have more to give, you know, yeah. I needed to take a break from posting. I also feel like Amy Klobuchar's like, um, energy has like become entangled with my sexuality in oh some my horrible god way. that is dark <laughs> no it, it is really it is very dark and it's very upsetting but i have never look i've never been like a, a dominant person mm-hmm. uh, like i'm not particularly into like um i'm so afraid of where this is going <laughs> no i'm just saying that like i just i have this like uh i just you know, I don't support Amy Klobuchar, right. but, but something about the like uh, sadistic stapler throwing energy has become enmeshed with my sexuality. Oh, yeah. And it's very confusing. Yeah, everyone, it's coming to the fore how many people have a secret fantasy of their boss telling them that they're worthless and then dominating them sexually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I because always- of Amy Klobuchar. Yeah, it's not, you know, I've certainly had thoughts throughout uh, my life about um, wanting to, you know, whatever uh, said eroticized boss scenario or whatever, Uh but I've never really like felt until now that like I I want to to be that and and embody that. And I, I'm I'm contending with it. It's 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 confusing. So where are you now on that? Exactly. Well, I mean, I haven't thrown a stapler at anyone. Okay. Well, and I don't plan on it. Well, I, you know, that is what I want for you. I think, I think if you're going to go, you got to go the whole way. I mean, (laughs) I don't think I, you know, I think it's fine for some things to exist only in, uh, at least a imagination. A stapler is too much. A stapler is too heavy and uh, scary. Yeah, Uh, I know. Well, I mean, (laughs) but yeah, also the other person consents. You're, you know what, who, who are we to judge? Uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, but Amy Klobuchar also cannot stop bringing up her her ex-boyfriends and how she like 
has willed them into donating donating thousands and thousands of dollars to her campaign. Yeah, so, you know, seventeen thousand dollars. Yeah, and girl, Amy girl Klo- power. <laughs> and the thing about Amy Klobuchar is like she doesn't vary any of her material. She just tells the same oh, bit over and over. So she's constantly telling that uh, the she's constantly telling about her ex boyfriends donating to her campaign. And then there was also like the snowstorm. The snowstorm. Bit. How would your hair fare in a blizzard? Oh boy. Yeah. There's yeah. Uh, every every joke that she has prepared is a punishment to us all <laughs> i know i know it's like you know she's got to know there's like video of this stuff like you got to like vary your anecdotes a little bit somebody all of these people need to take a ucb class yeah exactly and then maybe some of them would stop i think that some of them would stop running for president if they discovered ucb but so far the only uh, political person that has for sure we know taken a ucb class is chase and buddha chase and buddha judge yeah and you know what i think that the things that people i heard he was funny too yeah no i remember when george told us that yeah the things that people project onto melania the like oh we must (laughs) save her i don't feel that way about melania there's something there's something in melania that i i do feel like there's a a a sinister energy that you could see how it'd be compatible with donald trump but uh i do feel like he seems a really like a really sweet man to save we need to save Jason. He we seems do. he seems nice. Yeah, so I don't want him to be collateral damage in this weird wine cave cask of amontillado bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this fucking wine cave shit, man. It's just so there's so many things throughout this primary that I just you know, have just really like become part of my being in this way that is like I just sometimes I'm like why am I thinking about wine caves and like staplers <laughs> so i don't know i reached i like i i just i peaked and i needed to log off for a second it feels good i'll get back on yeah but i'm logged no, off for now we all need to i do it i've said multiple times on this show i've gone on breaks and things like that um uh, yeah occasionally i will also have sex every f- fiscal quarter um yeah, you know, you can't pour out of an empty cup. You got to recharge. You do. That is uh, how you get your witch energy back. That's true. Yeah, I mean, although, you know, there's definitely a, like self-care as well. I'm so bad at self-care. I like truly just like fry myself to the bone. I'm like always doing like 25 comedy things. And then I will like tweet like it's some kind of like job. But yeah. then I'm every once in a while, I'm like, okay, I'm not getting paid for this. You know, I'm really just, I'm just doing, I'm doing this for fun could you, you say? can i say that you actually like you seem so much and i know that you're not like not feeling super well but you seem so much like lighter since your twitter break like I do. this interaction i just feel i don't know i feel i feel that you are like restoring yourself i'm trying and, yeah. I'm, and i think that that is self-care for you yeah yeah i, I mean i think logging off is self-care because twitter is it's a toxic hellscape. <laughs> Amen, sister. Uh, yeah. Okay. So very quickly, I just w- want to comment on um, one of the big news stories uh, of the day, which is that over 1,100 former Department of Justice uh, officials have called for the Attorney General William Barr to resign um, so the hits just keep on coming. Uh, President Trump cannot stop doing crimes. 
basically Roger Stone, it was uh, the prosecutors who were um, working on Roger Stone's case recommended that he get seven to nine years in prison. And then DOJ, headed by William Barr, overruled that decision and recommended that he get a lighter sentence based on the what the president tweeted about the night before. And so now it's this whole big to do and you know uh, they're all crooks and i can't believe that these are the people who these are the most powerful people in our country <laughs> every I, single day <laughs> yeah no it's really fucked up i mean i i can believe it oh yeah sure yeah i mean so can you i, yeah. I didn't mean to imply that you couldn't <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's it's really just a, a truly insane level of corruption that you know, ought to be recognized by everyone as such. And I think that that's part of the reason I get so frustrated as Democrats contemplate uh, trying to run someone like Michael Bloomberg, who is as terrible, in my opinion. I do not. I mean, that is truly uh, Michael Bloomberg uh, clearly makes me nuts to the point that I cannot even speak, but that is definitely a contingent of people who think that Michael Bloomberg is a good idea are the people who thought that the only thing wrong with Hillary was that she was a woman. Yeah. Like, because Michael Bloomberg is like basically Donald Trump who believes in climate science. Like that's, about it he has the same like racist re- like stop and frisk obviously is and we're gonna devote it an entire episode we're gonna be dragging his ass next week we're gonna drag his ass we're gonna do a drag his ass episode dedicated to um as the president calls him mini mike b which is objectively very funny it is really <laughs> funny what did he say he's like we're not gonna have boxes to stand on oh, for yeah. the debate <laughs> he keeps saying that he's five four uh Trump says that Bloomberg is five four. Um, Bloomberg is also five foot seven. Oh, he's he's not really five foot four. No, he's not. But I didn't even put him in our live show. I did. What is going on with white men who are five foot seven? Someone DM'd me that Antonin Scalia was also five foot seven. Terrifying. And Michael Bloomberg is five seven. I'm right. Everyone else can. I'm right about this. This is my only conspiracy theory and I'm sticking to it. Um, but yeah, he's uniquely horrible. And I, I mean, somebody, I'm not the first person to say this, but the idea that he, that Bernie is not a Democrat, but Michael Bloomberg is. Yeah. He was just a Republican five minutes like ago yesterday, and, and he still is in his soul. He absolutely is. He voted for, he endorsed George W. Bush in 2004 I mean, he, if anything, he should be trying to primary Trump. He should not be in this. And also, we would not even be having this fucking conversation if the DNC didn't go out of their way to change the rules to allow Bloomberg to buy his way into the primary. The rules were set up that you had to show a certain level of grassroots support and the DNC, to accommodate Bloomberg, changed those rules. Tom Perez resigned. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember thinking in 2016 that it would be strongly better if Keith Ellison was the head of the DNC. Yeah, no, so did I. But I don't think that I... I foolishly did not 
quite recognize the extent to, to which Tom Perez would be an absolute disaster. Well, because, you know, because honestly, we couldn't have. No, I was like, I was like, this is a top, a toss up because like on paper to me, Keith Ellison and, and Tom Perez in 2016 looked very similar. That might've just been my own naivete, but Tom Perez was almost like not confirmed in his position in the, in the Obama administration because he was so far left yeah. compared to everybody else. So that's why I was like, oh, okay. Like maybe he's fine, but my God, it's between this between allowing Bloomberg to buy his way into the primary and the debacle in uh in Iowa in which he called for a second uh caucus or something like that like a second count of the votes yeah I don't know no not even a second count not even a recount a like a, a new vote an entirely new vote um it's just the appearance of impropriety means that he's got to go. Yeah. I mean, back to Michael Bloomberg for a second. I mean, Michael Bloomberg has dozens of sexual harassment cases against him. Um, Stop and frisk. The way that he talks about women is disgusting. And it's not even just, it's not even like this has just been reported in the last week. It's like, these have been reports that have been around for years now. Yeah, absolutely. And stop and frisk is certainly one of the most racist policies in recent memory. I mean, and he was defending it as recently as 2015. And now he's trying to distance himself from it. But he says that he, quote unquote, inherited it, but he expanded it and made, I mean, I mean, yeah, between he and Giuliani, that's what made New York into like a police state. (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah. And, you know, there has been a decrease in crime since stop and frisk has gone. And, you know, I'm not saying like there's no conceivable justification for stop and frisk it's horrible it's i mean like just to be it's state sanctioned racial profiling that's what stop and frisk is yeah and you know it's like i think i think it's important to get your like especially for folks who like us are white and haven't been subject to that kind of police harassment like just imagine really imagine what it would be like to be walking down the street with your friends and just have the cops stop and Mm -hmm. search you for no reason. I mean, it's just, I just, the like utter feeling of powerlessness and like, I mean, it would just, it would fill me with rage. And then to know that the rage is not something that you can do anything about because it might provoke the police to be violent towards you. I mean, it's just, it's just horrible and disgusting. And, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say that I would not cast my vote for Michael Bloomberg. I'm not willing to cast a vote for, like, I haven't really decided what I, what I would do at the end of the day. If it, you know, let's say we had, you know, Biden or something, which we won't, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I live in New York, so it doesn't matter that much, but I, I can say right now that I am absolutely not casting my vote for Michael. Bloomberg. I mean, it's the, the idea that he is even being entertained as a candidate is lunacy. I can't believe that we're, 
I can't believe that we're here. He's not offering anything. He is he is just saying, trust me, I'm I'm rich, which is exactly what Donald Trump did. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty much Trump part two. Yeah. Um, and today he released this campaign ad uh, like showing tweets from bernie supporters uh it was like an ad about bernie bros like is you know do we really want this energy and it's like man you know michael bloomberg like i'm not saying that people should like tweet horrible shit you know like i i don't i think that the you know fucking snake emojis are stupid like i you know i love the rat emojis but i don't like the (laughs) snake emojis like yeah i mean there's like people who post like crappy stuff in support of bernie sanders sometimes but to equate that with a billionaire who has enacted deeply racist policies has been a sexual predator who is now trying to buy an election i mean like the morality of people who think that the bernie reply guys are in any way like even touching michael bloomberg like it's just it is it's wild it's disgusting you know i mean i yeah i can't i and also i mean michael bloomberg as we all know has spent more on ads than anybody else all these television ads um he has been spending uh, tens of millions uh, i think he's up to 300 million dollars now disgusting um i don't know anybody else can can anybody else think of a way that that money could be better spent <laughs> like yeah, on I fucking mean, television ads that's i mean if you don't think that ex- that extreme wealth is immoral may i point you to michael bloomberg <laughs> yeah i mean so he's not even on the ballot in the first four states our next primary coming up is uh, the Nevada caucus, not yeah. primary, it's caucus. And that's on February 22nd. And Bloomberg is not on the ballot there. Uh, he's not on the ballot until Super Tuesday because he entered the race late. And, you know, I, I mean, I think it's pretty transparent that he is the DNC's plan to stop Bernie Sanders. I don't think that he would win an election against Donald Trump. And I don't really know how many other people even think that even some of the like high profile democratic operatives and pundits that are supporting him. Um, I mean, I think that it's, this is, you know, (laughs) I can't believe that basically the wave that Donald Trump rode in on was, you know, kind of a lot of the, the anger that exists on both the right and the left that the the system is rigged and he, I mean, he Donald Trump sold a false solution and a false um, scapegoat. But the idea that the people who we need in our coalition to win in 2020, the people who share that anger would be receptive to someone who is r- trying to rig this fucking primary for himself is absurd yeah he he will lose almost he is all the, the system yeah he is <laughs> he is the he is the the human embodiment of the swamp yeah yeah oh my god yeah i mean there are all those pictures of like 
him and Donald Trump and Bill Clinton playing golf together. Oh, yeah. And I guess, you know, he's touting like a potential Hillary Clinton being his VP. I mean, and man, I've just seen, you know, I've seen like, quote unquote, like woke people into this idea. And it's just like, again, it is such a disgusting and skewed sense of morality. You know, I mean, we've yeah, uh, we've we've talked a lot about it and, and we'll talk more about it next week but i mean he is just absolutely disgusting and basically you know i think the plan is if bernie sanders does not win a majority of delegates they're you know going to potentially select bloomberg as the nominee at a brokered or contested convention and that absolutely cannot happen you know i've seen this thing recently happening online uh, as warren's campaign um, you know, is, I don't want to say flailing, but, you know, she didn't come in in New Hampshire or Iowa at the level that her supporters would have hoped, of course, you know, and there's, I think that the way that a lot of Warren supporters see this and I have empathy for it is like, you know, that the media is really giving her the shaft and they are to be honest you know like even though i i'm not supporting elizabeth warren i mean it you know it is you know it is kind of crazy to have all of these national outlets declaring her campaign completely dead you know when you're two states in and it's like you know in some ways i think irresponsible journalism and it also feels like also they're not saying that about joe biden no you know, it's it's sexism and it's also just like a way to, you know, kill off one potential, you know, progressive nominee, even though she's, you know, she's not not as left as as I'd want her to be. Uh, but, you know, she's certainly uh, far to the left of like Klobuchar or Buttigieg or whatever. And so, you know, I've, I've seen like a lot of these takes online that just are starting to seem really like <laughs> I would say, you know, some uh some like Warren bro energy of kind of like overly projecting like personal stuff onto the campaign, a lot of like rage, a lot of lashing out. And like, I get it, you know, because it's like, I do feel that way when people, um, are, you know, dismissive of Bernie Sanders, like the, you know, the media, like kind of talking about like, you know, just how his campaign doesn't stand a chance, even though he's like the front runner. And like, I get, I get what it's like to see the media be like deeply unfair to your candidate. And I get the, the angry response to it. But that said, like, Oh man, uh, if there is like one plea that I have to anybody that's on the fence right now, it is like, it is a great time to get behind Bernie Sanders because if he does not get a majority of delegates and most of these states are not winner take all. So it matters like, you know, what uh, percentage of the vote he gets like, you know, it's uh, yeah, I mean, we could <laughs> we could easily end up with Bloomberg as the nominee and that would just be an unmitigated disaster because he would for sure lose to Donald Trump. And if for some reason he didn't, it would almost be like having I don't know, it would be like having a more effective Donald Trump because the policies, in my opinion, would be like as racist, but we wouldn't see this massive like resistance to it. You yeah, know? I did see, do you know, Ryan Knight on Twitter? He's pretty, he was like pretty big in uh, in the hole for Warren and he 
for exactly the reasons you outlined, has come over to uh, to support Bernard. Yeah, I mean, I, there are people who are doing it, um, and I I commend I commend everyone everyone who does. I think right now we're in a situation where we have uh, the luxury of the field being saturated with moderates. Yeah, um, and they are like splitting votes among themselves. Uh, but the more people drop out, uh, the more difficult this is going to be because you can easily see a lot of moderates coalescing around one candidate and that is not what we want. Yeah. It's really messed up. And, you know, I, you know, like certainly like in, in asking people to make that consideration, like, you know, I've thought about like, would I myself do it? Like, let's say, you know, Warren was like doing a lot better than Bernie Sanders. Like, I, I think I would, like, mm. I think that I would certainly by the New York primary, uh, but you know, probably before then, like I, you know, I, I, I definitely don't think that I, I definitely think that Bernie Sanders for folks who care about, um, you know, leftist values is, is a much stronger choice, but it's like, ultimately <laughs> Warren is someone that <laughs> has, has done good in her life. And that is, uh, and I think would, would try to help people in some way. And that is absolutely not true for Michael Bloomberg. And it's like, you know, we have my, like, yeah, my, my pitch to Warren supporters would be that if you care about the things that she cares about, um, and if, you know, I, I know a lot of people who who support her, who love her policy platform. If you care about her policy platform, the person who you should vote for, if not her, is Bernie Sanders. Because, yeah. um, you know, no one else in the race is offering anything even close. No, not at all. Not at all. You know, and it's just like, you know it has been very tense between uh, Bernie supporters and Warren supporters. And I don't really, you know, I, I don't buy the fact that we're all necessarily on the same side. I mean, like there are really progressive Warren supporters and then there are, you know, folks who are centrist that, you know, are come to uh, Warren by way of the K hive. And, you know, it's like not, I think that leftists are mistaken if they think that like, if Warren dropped out that like all of her votes would go to Bernie Sanders or something that wouldn't happen, you know, but like for, for the folks who are really, yeah. uh, on team Warren for the progressive policy platform, there is, you know, there, there are some choices right now. And I, you know, I don't know. I mean, but at the same time, I don't want to be too negative because it's like Bernie Sanders is the front runner. His campaign, I feel like is gaining steam every day. It's very exciting. We have an actual chance here to like, you know, kind of uh, somewhat peacefully overthrow the ruling class in this country. <laughs> I mean, it almost never happens that in the Democratic primary that someone would win Iowa and New Hampshire and not win the nomination. It's actually never happened. Yeah. So we don't know. We don't know, though, what happens with like the. Uh, I fucking hate the delegates. Yeah. Anytime someone starts talking about delegate math, I just. God, my vagina becomes 
so dry yeah i think about going yeah when i hear that i think about going back on the sex strike i mean it's funny it's like you know you and delegate i delegate math yeah Ugh. i think that you know you and i have both kind of radicalized ourselves like in the process of doing this podcast because it's like we read so much news all the time mm-hmm. to be able to do it and it's like you know once you kind of deepen your understanding of how bad things are bernie sanders certainly makes more sense but like you know at the beginning of this primary i was definitely like you know warren and bernie you know like just just one of them like you know it doesn't like kind of slight preference for bernie but now i've like definitely reached a level where uh if if bernie gets the most votes and they try to take it away from him at the convention i will be there getting arrested i will light myself on fire yeah um, don't you can't do that okay yeah fine. i mean you convinced me no i mean you're a hot girl for bernie we can't ruin that <laughs> yeah hot girls for bernie yeah. um yeah no i totally i totally agree i yeah i, I mean if you go back and listen to the early episodes uh my my evolution on this is is pretty clear i was like lean warren at the beginning and about i think probably around like late summer i was i had a i had a crisis of faith and uh and now here i am and yeah I, I have bernie merch now yeah i'm wearing a bernie t-shirt as we it's record true. this yeah i love it um there were three books that really i think changed my understanding of things in a kind of fundamental way and i'll just recommend them really quick um we've got people by ryan Grimm, which we've talked about on the show is mm-hmm. a really really great book um that goes through the history of movement-based politics in the past like 30 40 years and um you know the corrupting influence of money on the democratic primary listen liberal by thomas frank is another really really good book and i think for folks who you know what you know what myth that really completely fully dispelled for me was like the idea that um you know that that like people posting like Bernie or bust is going to like have any impact one way or the other, like 39% of people did not vote in the last presidential election. And this book makes it really clear why, because it truly goes into the devastation created by democratic administrations, both the Obama administration and the Clinton administration in particular, and also how um, democratic policies have played out in blue states like Massachusetts under Deval Patrick, for example. And like, you know, just for so many people. And Who this, suspended his campaign. Yes. Yes. <laughs> we love to see it. Yeah, we do love to see it. But, you know, it really talks a lot about NAFTA and mass incarceration and uh, welfare reform, particularly under Bill Clinton. And that, I think, you know, that was really, <laughs> I think reading that book was really the shift for me in terms of like, oh, like when people say that, uh, you know, the the two parties are the same. I, I think that that takes it a little bit too far. Republicans are uniquely sadistic, but like the idea of like Democrats, good Republicans, bad, is just completely murdered by this book. Yeah. And, and also uh, feminism for the 99% mm-hmm. um, was a really good book too about uh, leftist feminism. And so, you know, if you need some book recs, those are my three. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I think, and we will talk about this a little bit more on our on our Bloomberg episode. But one of the things uh, to Elizabeth Warren's credit that basically. It, in 2008, Michael Bloomberg said that like redlining, the end of redlining was to blame for the financial crisis. Oh my God. Which is absolutely bonkers. And so Elizabeth Warren's campaign put out this like very detailed video about the history of redlining that I thought was, uh, that I thought was cool and good. Uh, unfortunately it, it does seem that her campaign is not long for this world, but I, uh, but, but we're not official pundits. We are not. We're um, just a leftist podcast or some Brooklyn, <laughs> as everyone here is. But yeah, I mean, if you want to learn more about about redlining and about, um, particularly as Kate was saying in blue states in the in the Northeast, about how housing policy, uh, racist housing policy was carried out in the Northeast, um, I really recommend uh, the Color of Law. And uh, another book that I talk about on this podcast all the time is Dark Money by Jane Mayer. It's all about big money in politics and uh, Michael Bloomberg should read it. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He should be canceled. He's we. Oh, boy. We're going to cancel gonna the fuck out of him next week. his ass. Yeah, we're I gonna, can't wait. Yeah, we're, we're canceling. <laughs> Do I dare say mini Mike? Mini Mike B. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have an amazing interview coming up uh, with Heidi Sloan, who is running for Congress in Texas. Um, She's so great. We talked about abortion, childcare. She's a farmer. She has some really, really great. uh, Talk about someone who fucking does the work and walks the walk. Her personality is like exactly what I hope mine is. In a trance. Yeah. And also, you guys won't be able to see this, but she has very cool tattoos. Yeah. And I was like hell yeah people with tattoos all right so uh listen to our heidi sloan interview um subscribe to our patreon we're going to be going twice a week and we'll have uh, many episodes for uh for patrons where you know we will i think you know i think you know we'll interview some great guests but also we'll uh we'll say some stuff maybe about uh We'll let you, we'll let you in. We'll let you behind yeah. the curtain a little bit if you're wondering about oh you know what is really going on with Kate and Julia. Yeah, uh, we'll uh, we'll tell you. Yeah, I think we'll uh, you know who knows. I may I may even give more details about what it's like to be off the sex strike. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. Honestly, that's what I want to know. I'm I want to hear about it. So. I, I'm I'm feeling reckless. <laughs> I, yeah. All right. Um, Check out Heidi Sloan and uh, we will be right back. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. We are here with Heidi Sloan, who is running for Congress in Austin. Welcome to Reply Guys, Heidi. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. All right, let's jump in. Can you tell us a little bit about your campaign and why you decided to run? Yeah, for sure. So I am running for U.S. Congress in Texas 25th District, which is this wildly gerrymandered place. Um, It runs from central Austin and and Hayes County to the south all the way up, um, if you're familiar with Texas, west of I-35 and almost to Fort Worth. So it takes me a solid four and a half to five hours to drive from one of the district to the other. Um, but it is a very working class district. It is um, 
a median household income of just over $60,000 and uh, a whole lot of folks who are worried about their families and their communities right now. For me, the appeal is standing with those individuals and those communities against uh, an incumbent, Roger Williams, who is bought and paid for by Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo and Lockheed Martin, who votes on their behalf and doesn't ever come and visit the district. And I think it's a it's a good fight. It's a worthwhile fight. Um, And I'm really you know, we are starting early voting tomorrow. I feel at this point mostly just gratitude and exceptionally relieved that it has been a wonderful experience. We've knocked on almost 80,000 doors so far. We made that our metric instead of fundraising or instead of getting the most famous person to endorse us or anything like that. Um, We just wanted to meet people here. And that has been incredibly worthwhile. Um, my background is uh, as a in politics, my back to, background is as a community organizer. So I've worked on local campaigns and statewide campaigns for things like paid sick time for workers um, on a Medicare for all campaign, uh, affordable housing, decriminalizing homelessness, holding police uh, accountable to a more just and transparent system. Um, and all of those works have relied on regular working class people standing up and being willing to fight together with their neighbors for something bigger. So that was our inspiration to run this time. And it has guided every single part of how we've put this campaign together. It was really a test of that theory that we could apply it to electoral politics. And so far, so good. Oh, man, that is you really just checked all the boxes of Kate and my candidate dream journals yes Uh, absolutely (laughs) and we do want to say that you know although you mentioned that you don't prioritize uh being endorsed by famous people um you know you are uh endorsed by the very famous hit leftist feminist comedy podcast reply guys it's true you heard it here first folks (laughs) yeah so you know um, I'll take it. I'll incredibly take it. famous. You're organizers, so we want you <laughs> on our side. Part of the big coalition across the world. Yeah. One thing I was... Okay, so when we were looking at your website before this interview, one thing that I thought would be particularly interesting to our listeners um, is your emphasis on childcare and abortion as part of your platform. And can you say a little bit about what you'd like to do and also why you feel that those two issues are connected? Sure. I love this question. Um, for me, the, they, these issues are naturally connected. And um, endorsing the People's Policy Project uh, platform for child care, which is called the Family Fun Pack, um, which I love that name. Other people are like, whatever, <laughs> but I love it. Um, it includes child care as a public good. Um, and And my vision for that involves expanding our public school systems to meet the needs of more children um, who are being born into families at that time in life where everything feels hard, where you're maybe looking for a house or or um, really building up your career path and not making a whole lot of income and just wanting to come alongside parents and families that are growing and to make that something our communities show our support and our value of. So we endorsed that policy platform really early on in the campaign. And as we have talked to folks about it at the door um, and then 
event spaces, we couple it um, alongside of abortion access and reproductive care as a whole. And we do that by saying we think that families should grow if, when, and how they want to. So everything from protecting the rights of LGBTQIA individuals in adoption to making sure that there are school lunches to making sure that black mamas in Texas who are currently experiencing um, atrocious levels of maternal maternal mortality rates. um, These are all components of standing with families and giving them agency in the way that they want to um, bring new people and support new people in this world. Um, the child care policy rings so uh, true. It's so resonant with a vast array of people from incredibly diverse backgrounds. In, in Austin, for example, child care now costs about the same per semester as tuition at the University of Texas. But it's not just Austin. It is uh, rural families who are trying to decide if both parents can work, if both parents are available, um, who are trying to decide if they want to stay in the towns with extended families as a child care option or if they would like to pursue opportunities in other places. And they should be able to choose. Um, I don't think that economic circumstances should dictate how we nurture little ones. And so the the intersection here with reproductive justice is, of course, that I want people to choose to have babies when they are when they are ready to, when they find the people that they want to raise those babies with. Um, and I think it's a huge hindrance to look forward into the future and say, can I even care for this little one? Can I even provide what they need? I think that looking at child care and other support is a way of saying that um, some people are choosing abortion because of economic pressures, and it doesn't have to be that way. I think it's also a way of saying that your choices are your choices, and um, whether you're choosing to start a family or not, we support you in that decision, Um, especially women, giving women the agency to uh, not just control choices around their bodies, which is where reproductive justice tends to focus, but around the lives that come with those bodies. We can't separate the two of those things. Neither, neither can we separate them from things like working conditions, getting paid time off work to stay with your family. Neither can we separate them from our other physical needs, uh, which is why I always talk in the same conversation about the need for Medicare for all to cover everything that we need. Um, because just talking about our uteruses without talking about our minds or without talking about our hearts or our lungs. That's that's nonsense. That's not how bodies work. I absolutely agree. And, you know, as you're talking, I've been thinking a lot. Uh, you know, abortion is a huge issue for liberal feminists and leftist feminists alike. And I think sometimes um, there's a misconception that leftist feminists or just leftists in general don't care about abortion. And I actually feel like that is completely not true. I feel like, you know, our focus on Medicare for all and on free childcare, you know, for all the reasons that you were saying, like um, socialist or leftist feminism is is actually a, a much better answer than what 
corporate Democrats have on offer. And I was wondering if you could speak for a second to where you feel like your platform diverges with what we see centrist Democrats in Congress pushing for with regard to reproductive rights. Yeah, I think the conversation around particularly access to abortion tends to focus on um, abortions just being available without recognizing all of the complexities of actually pursuing that right. Um, In Texas, for example, uh, you have to be able to go to a certain doctor who is approved by the state, and there aren't a whole lot of them, especially in more rural areas. And then you have to actually, once the procedure is completed, you have to stay for 24 hours or as long as it takes for the doctor to confirm, the same doctor to confirm a follow-up appointment with you so that they can check you out and then send you home. Um, So some folks are driving hours and hours and making those appointments and then needing to stay overnight and then needing to drive back hours and hours after going through something that um, is difficult no matter what life circumstances you're in. Uh, It's physically difficult and often emotionally difficult as well. And it's not just about abortion being legal. It is about us all having guaranteed coverage to abortion. Um, We know that it is hard to take off work. We know that it is harder for some people to drive, that it is harder for some people to be able to stay in a hotel or with with friends. And if we just write it off and say that as long as this right is available, it's only available truly to some individuals. And those tend to be people with more wealth and more means already. Um, The saying, of course, being that the senator's mistress will always have access to abortions, right? Um, And that's true in the legal sense, but it's also true in the socioeconomic sense. I think we need to speak openly about the fact that 70% of Americans um, support their right uh, to choose abortion um, and to speak about how much of a stigma still surrounds those choices so that we can learn to support each other better. It's not one and done. It's not cut and dry. It is a whole um, economic and social issue that has profound impacts. And we can't just keep simplifying it and saying we've checked that box even after we codify, which we will, Roe v. Wade, we will we will get there. Um, we have to continue to actually look at how that's playing out in people's lives, understanding that people come from inequitable circumstances. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think that uh, the paradigm for abortion in this country, even from uh, from a lot of Democrats, a lot of establishment Democrats for a long time, has been this idea of safe, legal and rare. And I think that that's really quite an outdated notion uh, because I think it should just be like safe accessible and free (laughs) yeah i think it's uh you know to your point i mean texas is the size of france and the you know when the number of abortion providers can be counted on one hand um it doesn't matter even even if it's technically legal in those places it doesn't matter if as you said someone has to take multiple days off work and 
upend their entire income structure basically to um to have a to have the procedure um what is it like for you and i you know i'm i'm only as familiar with texas as uh what i see on uh in in news coverage um what is it like for you to be such an advocate for something like abortion in a place that seems as hostile to it as as texas seems or maybe that's wrong i don't know it's interesting. You know, we're in the primary right now. And so we are going out to 13 counties across Texas and talking to folks. And most of the doors that we're knocking on are people who have voted Democrat in the past. And so it skews a little bit of the conversation. But we also knock um, all of the doors in apartment complexes, which is one of our like favorite things to do uh, wherever the apartment is. We want to talk to everyone there because these are folks who are going to probably be either working or uh, on a fixed income. Um, And our experience has really been um, one of listening first, listening to folks share their own struggles with us before we bring up any particular um, issue or policy with them. But the conversations in which folks uh, bring up reproductive justice and child care these are personal conversations. They're talking about their own families, their own worries. And um, the fact that we can contextualize uh, reproductive justice in this broader scheme of supporting families, I think it, it, it's so liberating to, to know that we can be pro-choice and pro-family, that we can be pro-choice and pro-child, that we can be pro-choice together and just be so excited for families of all types to be more supported. I think that people are really um, profoundly optimistic when we put it in that frame of reference rather than saying, like, we can't talk to our neighbors about this, we can't talk to people at church about this or our bosses or our families. Um, what if instead we talk about what goes into making the decisions as a whole around our families? And it's just, it's so hopeful. I know people are still deep in the struggle and we, we walk with people through that every day. Um, but acknowledging, uh, that these choices are made with consideration that people really do like invest themselves and their energy into making Um, an outcome that works best for them and how can we make that outcome meet their hope that's really where we're headed Um, because we want people to to make a choice that works for them for the rest of their life whether that is um, to have or to not have a child in any given circumstance right and that's that's always uh the frame that i have seen reproductive rights uh that's always the lens that i've seen it through um i I've always uh, just found the right wing portrayal of being anti-choice as being pro-family, just like totally fallacious, because once those children are born, you know, in a perfect conservative world, they would be born into like extreme austerity policies, no child care, no health care, you know, so... To me, it has always been a clear line from more progressive 
um, policy standpoints to being more pro-family. Absolutely. I mean, I think about that all the time because I would really love to be a mom myself. And, you know, my main considerations and like whether I could do that, you know, are both like economic, you know, I mean, if we if let's say we were able to like have a bunch of leftist policies in free child care um, and free medical care, um, I think I would probably just do it because I want to. And also climate action is a really big thing for me because it's like you know i think for any uh aware person it's just such a such a huge consideration to decide to bring a child into the world when we're not really taking action on climate change and uh, i feel those issues are are deeply connected i know that that's also something that is a big part of your campaign as well right yeah definitely we hear that a lot especially in our organizing work on different campuses that so many young people are making choices about their families based on climate change, that that this is the determining factor at this point. And that is understandable and totally terrifying. Uh, I mean, I, I have personally thought through um, all of these choices in terms of paid family leave in terms of public education, in terms of wages and health care, in terms of a future for um, children that I might want to have. Um, and would they be like recruited to the military because we don't have other economic opportunities in our future? Like that's my been my train of thinking for such a long time. But now, uh, even more than those sort of immediate and personalized concerns, I think folks are really uh, worried that the world will not support their children. That that's um, that is potentially just not possible. Uh, that breaks my heart. And I think talking about the Green New Deal um, in particular is the way that we really find those intersections of saying a Green New Deal requires guaranteed health care. A Green New Deal requires stable and dignified housing. It makes sure that we are growing millions of new jobs with dignified wages and benefits alongside of them. A Green New Deal um, allows us to end the endless wars by divesting from oil and gas around the world. And, and a Green New Deal stops the world from being on fire and hopefully gives us an opportunity um, to grow it back into something that is mutually beneficial that we can sustain and that sustains us. So it's it's hard for me to not just say everything is part of the Green New Deal. Some days it feels like um, hard to, to, to draw a circle big enough around it when it affects seemingly every part of life. I love this. I love how you talk about this. And I got to say, because it is a comedy podcast that I uh, am getting strong, like, uh, like feminine witch vibes from this platform. (laughs) Whether or not you identify as a witch, I am just I am I'm really getting that. uh, And it is resonating with me. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I will take that (laughs) as a compliment. Uh, and I'm glad to hear I I, um, I think there is something really powerful to imagining a world that works for us, that we build for ourselves. 
So yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, a feminine witch is the highest compliment Kate can give someone. So <laughs> it's really a theme for me. Um, yeah, just take that with Amazing. with every ounce of flattery. Um, I I have one I have one question for you. I I was reading that you were involved in the win um, for the largest affordable housing bond in Texas history, and um, I had not heard of that myself. Could you talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Um, I love local organizing around policy issues. Like they really had to like um bring me around to the idea of running an electoral campaign, let alone being the candidate for one. Uh, because I just love finding something that we can win now that affects people's lives now. Uh, that we can like crystal clear see how it would affect uh people's material conditions, and so. Um, I guess it was two years now. We uh, got to be a part of organizing around what we were asking for was a, a 300 million affordable housing bond for the city of Austin. And um, the city of Austin was throwing out numbers in the, it varied by council member, but in the like high teens to like 30s, that range was what they were. Um, aiming for, which would have been more than they had invested previously. And, um, and so we took this idea of a $300 million bond and we pitched it, uh, the potential of that amount of money to nonprofits, to individuals struggling with housing, to organizing groups, and just asked folks to imagine what we could do with that money. And and it was overwhelming uh, how positive people felt. City Council ended up adopting a bond measure to put on the ballot of $250 million, which was close enough. Uh, and, and when we had it um, out during the election on bond, um, it came back with just enormous flying colors. Very, very few groups in Austin were not ready for more affordable housing. It's interesting um, for me because I've done so much work around homelessness. And I think the critique here is that um, when we when we do work to decriminalize homelessness, to let people who have inadequate shelter just be um, that folks uh, criticize and say, well, you just want them to do anything. You're not here for a solution. When, in fact, we had worked for that solution just prior to the decriminalization campaign. Um, it's a little bittersweet because in Texas, housing is is tough. Um, we really depend on public-private partnerships to get a lot of things done. And that's another part of why I'm running for federal Congress is to make sure that we are investing HUD dollars in new public housing, repealing the Fair Cloth Amendment and sending good grant money down to our, our local um, municipalities just because that, um, that big block of money still depended on developers coming in and meeting us uh, to, to get access to it, um, hitting some of the, the marks that city council set forward. Still an enormous win, very, very positive. Um, has changed lives in Austin for sure, uh, but not enough at the end of the day, not by a long shot. 
just to change gears for a second here, you are a farmer. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I have so many questions about that, but can you tell us a little bit about like what, what, what does it mean to be a farmer in this day and age and how has it informed your decision to run for Congress? I love this question. I love farming so much. Um, I uh, was a teacher for a lot of years. I worked in a preschool classroom and got a wild hair after like six years of being there. And I was just like, I just want to farm. Um, but land in Texas, it like everywhere else is so expensive. So I started looking for farming jobs. Um, I am a farm worker to be technical uh, and and very proud of it. I work at a nonprofit that is um, a housing community for folks who have experienced chronic homelessness. We have um, about 51 acres total and the farm exists in the middle of the housing community. So I work alongside of about a dozen folks who spent between, I would say, three and 30 years living under overpasses or in and out of shelters. And we grow food together. We grow uh, annual vegetables and we have a few hundred fruit and nut trees. We have egg laying chickens and dairy goats and honeybees and greenhouses. It's a farm. It's a very diversified farm. Um, and all the food that we grow uh, gets to go back to the community, the housing community that we are smack dab in the middle of. So for me, it's like this beautiful closed looped cycle, uh, finding people work that they like that they want to show up for and i think farming is great for that because it's outside and you know that the animals and the plants they need you they depend on you and then the products of our of our labor go to people that we care about which is really really important for like healing from those experiences of homelessness uh so farming has led me into this amazing world of other farmers most of whom are operating more in a commercial space uh, who have to run all their own sales and advertising and all that kind of stuff, which I'm grateful not to have to do. But I love getting up in the morning and and just like the rest of my team, putting my hands in the dirt and learning about the seasons and just rolling with everything that nature is going to throw at us. I'm still feeling like I was not wrong on the nature witch vibes. This is here. what I was just gonna say. <laughs> yeah, this is absolutely. I'm, I was like, you're you're not doing anything to dispel the rumors that we are starting. I mean, look, you know, I am, uh, you know, I'm I'm pretty woke, and I try not to, uh, I try to let people identify as they wish, you know. So I'm not trying to uh, put this witch label on anyone who doesn't want it, but I I just will say that. The nature energy is real and I am here for it. As, as we say on this podcast, we stand. We stand. Um, so I think that, you know, probably one idea that a lot of people have is that it would be like near impossible for a leftist to win in Texas. I know Austin is pretty liberal, but, you know, what is it like? to like what would you say the political landscape is like there do you expect that leftists will win in texas is that something that could happen are people imagining texas as a more conservative place than it really is i think people are imagining that we don't have receipts in 2020 that um what we saw in 2016 was Trump and and his crew running on promises to particularly to like working class rural white folks 
and and winning on that. But they were promises about trade and they were promises about agriculture. And now we have the receipts that we can point to and say that was never intended for you. That was intended to for a handful of big corporations and it just does not trickle down. And, you know, in 2018, after a little while of having more of these kinds of receipts and a more complete narrative, what we saw in Texas was enormous voter outreach from the Beto O'Rourke campaign, which was pretty incredible. Um, But I think that um, what was maybe lacking from campaigns like that more progressives instead of identifying as um, like me, I, I identify as a democratic socialist. What I'm interested in in is centering um, policies that affect, affect all working class people. And so like drawing those new lines uh, means that our immigration policy is not just abolish ICE. It is um, to make sure every migrant worker has access or has guaranteed fair pay, equitable pay to the person that they're working next to and that they can join a union. Because if not, then all of us suffer. And honestly, this is how we get Texans on board with immigration reform is talking about how migrant workers have been part of a system that undercuts all of our wages. So if we're just real about it, if we're just able to say, like, look, who this who is benefiting in this situation, whether it is immigration, whether it is criminal justice or healthcare, who's actually benefiting? It's not us. It's not any of my neighbors, however they voted last time. So I think that those two lessons, what Trump did, what Beto was able to accomplish, and that here in Texas, folks just never have had their door knocked. Like over and over again, I I know like in Iowa, we have all these stories of people getting frustrated that so many campaigns are knocking on their doors. But here we have 800 volunteers and story after story after story for me and for them is that people open their doors and they're shocked that somebody wants to talk to them. They weren't expecting that. So in the general, we've loved so much um knocking 80,000 doors and soon to be 100,000 doors in the primary. In the general, we're going to knock 500,000 doors. That's our goal. We've already said it. We know what that means. It means uh, recruiting all of our Democratic supporters to be organizers with us in our first pass and then knocking a good 200,000 swing voters and new voters and spending time with them in their homes hearing their stories and drawing the new lines that we need to draw to make sure that their needs are met as well, that they're not outside of our circle because they're not, we're not going to win if we're excluding people. And I think that's the real difference. Um, That's the opportunity in 2020. Uh, I'm really, really thrilled at, at being able to participate in it. And, and certainly Texas can be a little intimidating sometimes, but I think most people are ready to stand up and stand with their neighbors. That is so amazing. Um, We're coming almost to the end of our time here. So I was wondering if there's anything that we didn't ask you about that you'd like to talk about. Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, Let's see. We are in a competitive primary. I'll tell you this, uh, which has been 
Fascinating. Uh, there's another person in the primary who ran last time. Um, this time she is running on Medicare for all, which yay organizers across the country for convincing progressives that this is where we're at as a as a country now. Um, and uh, she is like a, a totally fine person. The The difference is that. Um, is that we have had so many organizers contribute to our policies and make them have these nuances be so field tested. And so just like I'm sure these organizers are also some of your listeners or or people that um, are in our same circles uh, here on this show. And I just want to say thank you to every person who has been like on the ground testing out policy in our neighborhoods and in our in our towns and cities, because we've been able to use that and to grow and to really draw a distinction between folks who are taking these progressive policies after they've been more popularized and those who are continuing to write them and make them better. That is, that's so cool. And, you know, I think we both like really share your feeling that this is a very exciting time. Yeah. And I, and I think to your point about um, maybe some of the misconceptions uh, about Texas is that, you know, the people, there are people like you who are working to change the the country's view of Texas and basically where Texas goes as a state. And, you know, even demographically speaking, Texas will look completely different than it did in, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and I think that that's really exciting. And I'm excited that there are people like you who are ready to meet the meet the like excitement and the challenge of of the new Texas. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, quick plug. If anybody is in Texas and wants to come knock doors with us, please feel free. Uh, we're knocking doors every single day and we'll buddy you up with somebody if you've never done it before. And we would just love to have you. That is so awesome. And Heidi, I just want to say one more time, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. To talk with us uh, and to the reply guys, reply guys out there. Uh, please help Heidi knock some doors, throw her campaign uh, a few bucks. Um, or uh, do you need help making like phone calls and stuff? Like what can out of state listeners do? We really would love more help making phone calls in particular. Yes. Great. Awesome. Um, yeah. Well, and, you know, as much as you can hear Heidi uh, saying great stuff, I just want to, you know, also validate that the vibes are great as well. Really so, good vibes. Good really, vibes Really only. good vibes. <laughs> and um, Heidi, thank you so much for coming on Reply, guys. We wish you the best of luck with your campaign. And um, it's March 3rd, right? Yeah. You said? March 3rd March is the 3rd. primary election day. Early voting starts tomorrow. Oh, my gosh. That will be the 18th. When that's this comes right, out. That's right. Um, so vote early and often, everyone. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Heidi, thank you so much. We're we're so excited about your campaign and we we wish you all the luck in the world. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O H. Julia tweets and Twitter is where you can also find 
our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. Walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is mine.